What does sleep have to do with heart disease, depression, high blood pressure, and obesity? Turns out, everything. Sleep is one of the few things that every human on Earth has in common. We need a lot of it, and we need it every night. If we don't get it, there will be consequences. And it doesn't take very long for these consequences to have a very noticeable impact. A lot of us are probably familiar with what it feels like to not sleep for a night. Whether you've stayed up partying or you've raised children, a night of no sleep is a commonly shared experience. The next day, you feel tired, you're more prone to mood swings, and you're generally intolerable to the people around you. But after three days of sleep deprivation, all of your symptoms become drastically exacerbated. You may even start to experience hallucinations. After just five days of not sleeping, your reality can become so distorted that you are at risk of experiencing a psychotic episode. But what if you think that you are sleeping, but in reality, you're not? You get in bed, you close your eyes, and then it's morning. From your perspective, you've had a full night's sleep, but really, you were in more of a state of limbo, somewhere between deep sleep and being awake. This is a phenomenon that can slowly accumulate and lead to things that we mentioned earlier. Heart disease, depression, obesity, and a whole mess of other conditions over time. It's the experience that a billion people on Earth are having right now. Perhaps even you. From Life Sciences Nova Scotia and Snack Labs, welcome to New Wave, a podcast that explores the pioneers that are shaping the future of life sciences. When I was 25 years old, I shared a hotel room with one of my best friends. My name is Jeremy Saunders. I am producing this show alongside you. <laughs> I had flown into Toronto and my flight landed at midnight. So do you, do you remember, I know that we've talked about this night, but do you remember the night that we're talking about? No, I look, I don't, but I don't need to because, so I, I mean, I, I don't know if you've already explained it to our listeners, but when we go on tour for our other podcast, we usually are trying to save money. So we always have one hotel room for three of us. I mean, and, especially and, five and, years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we would all share one hotel room together. And, and by we, I mean me, you, and Brian, who's also producing the show. Because we're sharing one hotel room, typically we would have two beds. And I would, for whatever reason, always share a bed with you. Jeremy had arrived earlier that day and was already asleep by the time I got there. But on this particular night, how many beds did we have? Well, I don't remember. We had one king-size bed. <laughs> That's so cute. When I finally got to the room, counting down the seconds until my head would hit the pillow, my heart sank. Jeremy was snoring. But it wasn't just a snore. It was something else. It was a very labored attempt at breathing, one that sputtered and sometimes stopped entirely. Sometimes he would stop breathing for what seemed like an eternity, only to sputter on once again after 10 or 15 seconds. I watched him for several minutes, scared that if I fell asleep, he may never wake up. Frankly, the way that he slept was frightening. 
and I was shocked that when we woke in the morning, he could even function at all. There was no way he had gotten any real rest while he breathed that way all through the night. Should I do a demonstration of how you used to sound while you were sleeping? Would you, would you like me to? Because I know. Can you do a demonstration? Sure, yeah. What does it sound like? Okay. I think normal sleeping would probably sound like a little bit like this. I think I'm even more quiet than that. Well, let's say... Let's, UFCF, though. Let's say there's a slight snore. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I probably sound something like this. <laughs> that, I mean, how bang was I bang on? I think you were conservative. <laughs> Come on, man. It's it was bad. Because Jeremy and I had started a business together, I experienced the sensation of fear while he slept several times. I would wake up to the loudness of his snoring, only to look on in horror as I waited for the moment to arise when the 15-second pause in breathing became a permanent one. I began to tell him about these experiences of waking up to his intensely intermittent breathing and how shocking it was to be woken up to what sounded like the slow but certain suffocation of my best friend. Every time I wake up, I'm berated by you telling me that you were convinced I was going to die in my sleep. When I would say to you, there's something going on with you. There's something wrong with how you are sleeping. It's not okay. Yeah. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And then it, and then over time it became more annoying, but there was always a sense of fear with how you were breathing. Yeah. What would you think when I would bring that up to you? Well, <clears throat> I wouldn't think much of it on our podcast that we host together. Um, we are no strangers to kind of taking jabs at one another, you know, playfully making fun of each other. And, um, I mean, I could go into the things that I make fun of you for, but maybe this isn't the proper place or time. This is, this is not the platform (laughs) for that. Okay, fine. Um, but what you guys, what you guys would, uh, especially you, you would always kind of jab me by saying you got sleep apnea, bro. Like that was, (laughs) that was your line. And that became like a running like a running joke on the podcast. You, you got sleep apnea. Jeremy would always dismiss my assertion that he had sleep apnea. This went on for a few years, and eventually, it all came to a head. And I would always, de- I would always deny it. In jest, playing along with the, the game that we have going on, but also like deeply down going, well, I, I, I don't actually think I have sleep apnea. Now, that joke was a long time running j- joke. I'm, I'm, people can't see this, but air quotes joke. Um, But there was some seriousness to it on your end. And eventually I thought, well, you know what would be really interesting is if if we turned this joke into an entire episode of our podcast. I've got a I got a bit of a special recording um, uh, that we're gonna do today. That's fun. I'm so excited for today. Yeah. And so what I did was I booked an appointment to get tested for sleep apnea. Okay. Uh, here we are. Uh, it is early on a Tuesday morning, and unbeknownst to Brian and Taylor, I have uh, set myself an appointment to go to a sleep clinic to, to once and for all, put a, an end to the, the mystery, not so much mystery to Taylor, apparently, 
but the mystery of whether or not I, in fact, do have uh, sleep apnea. And I recorded the entire thing. I brought in a microphone. It was my friend Maria, who's an RT. She actually worked at a sleep clinic. And I'm with Maria. Hello, Hello. Maria. Hello. I am a registered respiratory therapist. It is somewhat like a lung nurse. And for some context here, back when Jer sneakily got this test done, he also wanted to poll a few people before his appointment to see what they thought the results might be. So uh, I'm going to take you all along for this little journey, and we're going to figure this out together. I'm going to go right now. My girlfriend's asleep. I'm going to wake her up for this. Um, do you think I have sleep apnea? Maybe. Maybe? What? Well, can you elaborate? You breathe funny sometimes, I guess. Okay, let's see what my mom thinks. Call Mom Saunders. Hello? Uh, hi, Mom. So, uh, I, uh, everyone tells me that they think I have sleep apnea. Like, Becca, Bridie, Taylor. Everyone, everyone I share a bed with thinks I have sleep apnea. Yeah, I think you should get checked if you're snoring. Okay. All right, here. Listen, I'm going to let you go. Bridie's on the other line. I want to ask her, too. Okay. All right, love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bride? Yeah? Um, Do you think I have sleep apnea? Yeah, I think you probably do. Explain to me why you think I have sleep apnea. Do I snore? Is that what it is? Um, It's like you're trying to inhale through while you're sleeping and you but you're just kind of sucking back on on like no oxygen and then it kind of with a rush suctions into you and your whole like body kind of rattles it's just that all night long i don't think you have any sort of consistent breathing through the night is that always or is that just like once in a while it's always, I would say. Holy yeah. f- Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to go get tested for sleep apnea, so I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. All right. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. So right, Maria did what Maria does. She set me up with all the gear to take home to test to see if I had sleep apnea. So what we're doing is a take-home sleep study. Okay. So there's three main parts to the sleep study. Mm-hmm. We've got this belt that goes around your chest. What that's doing while you're sleeping, it will be measuring your chest expansion. <laughs> the next thing we have is a probe on your finger, okay. okay, which will be measuring your heart rate and your oxygen level throughout the night. Okay. So if you do have um, an obstruction in your upper airway, we can measure if it is followed by a drop in your oxygen levels. Okay. okay, and would the heart rate typically go up? Most likely. Okay. Yeah, and then the next part to the study would be these prongs in your nose. This is another diagnostic tool to measure uh, basically flow in and out of your nose. So if you stop breathing, this would be the first um, tool that would recognize that if this if taylor was wearing this i don't i i i suspect it probably wouldn't pick up much because he literally just breathes hot and heavy out of his mouth and like it's kind of like as bad as bigby like it it just (laughs) covers the room in this like 
hot smell. Um, sounds very pleasant. Can you guys do anything about that? I, I'll send Taylor in. Later. You should probably send yeah, Taylor. Yeah, I'll send him in for the yeah. issue. Yeah, so let's get this on. Okay. Oh, I'm actually gonna put it on. And you did this all while I was away traveling. Uh, we got uh, Taze back from his long uh, trip away. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, it was like a, it was like gonna be a little surprise for when you got home. I've been doing a little bit of self discovery okay. over the last <laughs> over the last little bit in many different ways, like um, spiritually, physically, yeah, like emotionally, yeah, like all three of those, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. for sure. Um, but in terms of my own physical self exploration. Oh. I decided to to put things to rest. I mean, you know, to fast forward, uh, I, I, I did the test. I went back to see Maria to get the results. Could sleep apnea do some, do some like actual real yes. damage to the body? Yes. It depends on the severity of your diagnosis. Um, so generally... When you stop breathing in your sleep, your oxygen level falls, okay? Um, And that dip in your oxygen level, if it happens like 20 times an hour, every hour that you're asleep, can put a lot of stress on your organ systems, specifically your heart. So you can imagine if every time you stop breathing, your oxygen falls, your heart races, your blood pressure spikes, that happening 20 times an hour negatively impacts your your cardiac system and puts you at risk of developing cardiac disease. Could there be, is there risk of like, um, like stroke or like lack of oxygen to the brain or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Stroke, cardiac disease, uh, even diabetes. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, when, you're, when your sleep is really disrupted and poor quality, um, the stress levels in your body are elevated. High stress levels, high cortisone in your body can literally lead to the development of any kind of, any kind of disease. Stress is not good. Yeah. You need sleep. Yeah. And oxygen level falling, when you think about it, every cell in your body needs an adequate amount of oxygen to... Um, exhibit its proper functions. Hello. Hi, Maria. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, too. I have the results here, (laughs) yes. Do you remember how many apnea events that you were having per hour, which is the measurement by which they measure whether you have mild, moderate, or severe sleep apnea? Yeah, well, I I can definitely see that um, you had some respiratory events. (laughs) Okay, all right. Where do you guys think I I ended up? How many many do you think I had? Based on knowing that five is normal and 30 is severe, where do you think I, I landed on the scale? The results showed that... You actually had 44.5. Yeah, I have sleep, I have sleep apnea, bro. <laughs> like badly. Um I have severe sleep apnea. Were you were you surprised by that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I because again, I thought I thought, "Oh, well there's no way I have sleep apnea." When I wake up and I feel rested, well, of course I don't have sleep apnea. Right? At least that's what I thought. 
At the time, I remember thinking that sleep apnea was something that people my parents' age had, and that my friend in his mid-twenties having sleep apnea was surely a rarity. I wanted to speak to an expert to get more clarity around all of this. And you'd be hard-pressed to find someone more qualified than Dr. Neil Smith. My name's Dr. Neil Smith. I'm an otolaryngologist, though uh, most people know the profession as a ears, nose, throat doctor, or ENT. Yeah, so there are two types of sleep apnea. There's what's called central sleep apnea and obstructive sleep apnea. Central sleep apnea, uh, which we don't tend to deal with as surgeons, but central sleep apnea is a problem getting the message from the brain to the muscles that, that provide inspiration of air into the lungs. Obstructive sleep apnea means that the patient is trying to take a breath, but because of laxity of tissues and collapsibility of tissues in the upper airway, they collapse and this leads to snoring. Did you notice that? Snoring. It's always there. First, we're going to get another take on how sleep apnea can impact someone's health. But I want you to keep snoring in mind. Tuck it away in a safe place. We're going to revisit that soon. If patients, however, have periods where there's complete breathing cessation, so they're not breathing because of the collapsibility of these tissues, and if that period of breathing cessation lasts for longer than 10 seconds, along with a drop in one's oxygen level, this is what we refer to as an obstructive event. And if you have uh, several of these obstructive events per hour... Like 44, in Jeremy's case it can create physiologic changes in the body. Sleep apnea is one of the most severely undiagnosed conditions in the world. There are approximately 1 billion people now with sleep apnea. More than 90% of people who have it don't know it. Uh, Interestingly, there was a study, um, I believe it was out of Stanford a few years ago, which took a bunch of patients who were were found to have sleep apnea, I believe it was a thousand patients, and asked them, did you think prior to the study that you had sleep apnea? And 90% of people said, no, I I did not think that. I thought, oh, well, there's no way I have sleep apnea. And the downstream health consequences of sleep apnea are not the sort that someone should take lightly. Over time can increase one's risk of everything from heart attack to stroke, high blood pressure, diabetes, erectile dysfunction, um, a a lot of these uh, health issues, but it can also result in a very poor quality sleep, which can exacerbate everything from depression to anxiety, other uh, health problems such as fibromyalgia and the pain associated with that. If you don't sleep well, all of these other health issues tend to be exacerbated. So it can result in just a poor quality sleep and uh, psychological issues and exacerbation of psychological issues in addition to physiologic changes within the body. And along with all of that, as if it wasn't enough, People who live with undiagnosed or untreated sleep apnea are six times more likely to die in a car accident. There's a vast number of unexplained car wrecks out there that might be explained by the chronically fatigued bodies and minds of those who have sleep apnea but aren't diagnosed. When I learned that Jeremy had sleep apnea, I thought of all the people I know that snore while they sleep. Do they have it too? Is snoring a precursor to an all-but-assured diagnosis? What is snoring? 
one of the things that we understand from looking at brainwave activity during one sleep through what are called EEGs is we know that there's staging of sleep and we know that a healthy sleep um, relies on going through these stages of sleep and remaining as best you can in, in a deeper sleep throughout the night. We know that these obstructive events that happen in sleep apnea and even in snoring can jolt one from a, a deep sleep to a more restful sleep. As we go through stages of sleep, the tissues in the airway, the palate, the, the, the tongue, particularly the back of the tongue, the throat muscles, they tend to relax as we get into a deeper and deeper sleep. And as they relax, they infringe on the airway. The airway gets smaller. The air has to, to rush in faster. And there's something called Bernoulli's principle, which is fast-moving air creates a low pressure. And so eventually the airway starts to collapse. And a partial collapse creates the vibration of these tissues known as snoring. And a complete collapse results in, in these periods of apnea where one stops breathing completely. I was a bit disheartened to learn in this conversation with Dr. Smith that there's not exactly a well-defined reason for why someone develops a snore while they sleep or why their airway closes, causing sleep apnea. There are things that elevate one's risk, like obesity and alcohol consumption, but it seems that pretty much anyone, for no distinguishable reason, can snore or develop sleep apnea. We're not exactly sure what's happening there, but we do know that over time, those muscles relax more, which exacerbates one's snoring and sleep apnea. But Neil did bring up something that I was very intrigued to hear, because I suspected that this was a question on many people's minds. People will say, why is it when I go to sleep at night, my nose gets more congested? So you have this huge this huge vascular network in your nose. And the idea is, is that vascular network adds heat and adds humidity to the air that we breathe through our nose. But what happens is when we stand erect, those blood vessels drain quite well. When we lay down at night, those blood vessels become engorged with blood, they swell and it narrows the airway. Okay? Now the air has to move faster through that same airway, and that fast-moving air creates a low pressure, once again this Bernoulli's principle, and that lower pressure relative to the outside of the nose creates a collapsing of the area in the nose, um, in the sidewalls of the nose called the nasal valve and when that happens the airway collapses the air and the nose becomes more congested it's harder to breathe through the nose then we tend to open one's one's mouth and once you open the mouth the tongue base tends to fall back and so it's the combination of all of these things that as we lay down gravity sort of takes hold the tongue falls back the nasal lining becomes engorged with blood and narrows the combination of all of these things um, really results in snoring and sleep apnea. So if you end up with a diagnosis, how do you treat it? Well, the gold standard for treatment is what's called CPAP. CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. CPAP machines were invented in 1980 by a man named Colin Sullivan, an Australian physician and professor. Sullivan had a long-term interest in the upper respiratory airway and its role in SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. The first version of a CPAP machine 
was essentially a reverse vacuum. And the original CPAPs were continuous positive airway pressure. It was like duct taping a, a leaf blower to your face. I mean, it was blowing all night and it was incredibly uncomfortable. Now, it's easy to hear that and think, why did anyone ever use it if it sucked so much? No pun intended. As we learned earlier, sleep apnea is classified as mild, moderate, or severe. Mild is 5 to 15 apnea events per hour, where an event is when your airway completely collapses and you stop breathing for 10 seconds or more. Moderate is 15 to 30 events per hour, and severe is anything over 30. (laughs) Do you want to know the calculation of how many minutes you spent not breathing every night if you got eight hours of sleep? How many? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the calculation right now. Well, it also depends on like how long you're not breathing. Like what's an interruption, right? Like what's the length? An interruption is 10 seconds or more. Oh, oh, you know this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Damn it. Okay. How much? Let's just, so we're just going to, we're going to go with the, like with the, with the, a 10 second. We're keeping it at 10 seconds. Okay. So here, so severe sleep apnea is defined by having 30 or more events per hour. Check. You had 44 (laughs) of 10 seconds or more. Copy. Per event. Yeah. So based on having 44 apnea events per hour. And if I assume that you sleep for eight hours, which I believe you roughly yeah, That's do, what I try to get, yeah. Seven to eight. You spend almost 59 minutes not breathing every night. Whoa. <laughs> almost an entire hour. That's no, really bad. Almost an entire hour <laughs> of, your, of your night's sleep, you are not breathing. All those apnea events, they come at a cost. The invention of CPAP was a revolutionary breakthrough that would have brought the people of pre-1980 to tears because the alternative was a hole cut into your throat. A tracheostomy is where you would receive a surgical opening in your neck to your windpipe. You would have a tube inserted and a valve that you would manually open each night before you go to sleep to let the air in, bypassing your airway that collapses while you sleep. In the morning when you wake up, you would close it shut. This is an incredibly invasive procedure that, as I'm sure you can imagine, you would rather avoid. This treatment option is almost never done anymore, and it's because of the invention of CPAP machines. The, the gold standard, which we talk about in medicine, what's the best treatment for sleep apnea? It, it, it is CPAP, and there's a couple reasons for it. As we highlighted before, the collapse of the airway can occur in multiple areas. So CPAP will bypass whatever those areas are. You can remove part of the palate with a UPPP, and maybe that was the main problem, and you may get some benefit for a few years. You can advance the mandible or jaw, which moves the tongue base and holds the tongue base forward. And for many patients, that will be helpful for a period of time. Um, you can do a surgery to straighten the septum in the no- of the nose, remove polyps, r- uh, reduce the size of the adenoids, which are in the back of the nose. And that can be helpful for a period of time. But as we get into more severe sleep apnea, and as sleep apnea progresses, which it tends to with age, CPAP really is the gold standard and will work no matter how bad sleep apnea gets. 
If we're going to talk about the way that CPAP has helped someone, there is a specific person that we need to talk to. Do you want to know what I do? Do you want to know, like, what interest? Whatever you want there. Yeah, whatever, oh, okay. you want, whatever you feel like including. Okay, my name is Vera Lloyd. I'm a mom to four wonderful kids. Vera is essentially the poster child for CPAP. For years, she unknowingly lived with sleep apnea, thinking she was just a loud snorer. I find it funny. So we, we, when the kids were younger, we lived in a two-story home. Two of the kids had their bedrooms in the basement, and I slept on the top level. Several nights, my kids would come up from the basement to my bedroom and say, Roll over! We can't get to sleep! That's how loud I was. My snoring is horrendous when I don't have it treated. I was a walking zombie. I made sure everything was done. Everything was a list for me at one point because I just couldn't remember. I don't have any memory anymore. I fall asleep at work all the time. When I'm driving, I'm afraid I'm going to fall asleep and go off the road. I'm really irritable with everybody. And then she had her fourth child. And all the symptoms that had been accumulating over years and years came to a head. So I was more or less masking the fact that I had an issue. It wasn't until the fourth kid came along that I realized, I can't do this anymore, I need help. When the respiratory therapist and I went over my sleep apnea report, um, she informed me that I had 60.8 events per hour, severe sleep apnea. I wasn't even able to stay asleep for one full minute. No wonder I was so exhausted. It was undiagnosed for a very long time. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that CPAP saved Vera's life. Well, if you can't get a consistent sleep, then the next day you're toast, right? Um, I was constantly waking up with headaches, migraines, uh, just total brain fog. Once I started uh, undergoing the CPAP therapy, I didn't need the lists anymore, right? So, and I wasn't nearly as irritable anymore. I was like, okay, you can joke with mom now. I won't chew your head off. It's been a transformative experience for me. This is the amazing part. It didn't happen overnight. I was really hoping it would. And I wasn't really convinced that that I did have sleep apnea because it didn't happen overnight. But I can tell you that somewhere around the three-month mark for me, it's like someone turned on a switch and all of a sudden, like, I could hear the angels singing in the background because the world was open again. And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in love with my CPAP. But the thing I used to really hate is just how bulky it is around the, the head and that when you roll over, you have to make sure that you don't, you know, disconnect the tubing or whatever. But one of the things that um, in the beginning of my treatment was the pressures were just so high but if there was something where the pressures could be so much lower until you actually needed them then I think it would make the experience a whole lot better you know I want to introduce you to Hamid Hanafi Uh, my name is Hamid Hanafi I'm the founder and CEO of Novoresp Hamid has a PhD in biomedical engineering with a focus on how humans breathe We've been talking for a while now about how harmful sleep apnea can be and the enormous amount of people out there who live with it. But a problem that's arguably bigger than the amount of people who live undiagnosed is the amount of people who know their diagnosis and still don't treat it. 
And that's where Hamed and Novarest come in. That close to 1 billion people globally suffer from sleep apnea. Novarest is a startup company in Halifax, um, Nova Scotia, that its aim is to provide the most comfortable breathing experience for patients on positive airway pressure machines, including CPAPs. CPAP, by and large, is a revolutionary advancement in sleep disorder treatment. A CPAP machine is a machine that applies pressure through a tube and a mask. So you wear a mask, there's a tube attached to it that goes to a machine that has a blower on it. That blower applies this pressure and keeps your airway open, basically mechanically through that pressure. And as time goes on, CPAP machines change and they adopt new features to improve on the rudimentary reverse vacuum that they once were. Everybody knows the comfort on CPAP machines needs need to improve, but in reality, people have come up with everything that could be added to CPAPs. And like a lot of technologies in our world today, they've reached the end of the road, and they're as good as they are ever going to get. CPAP machines have a fatal flaw, the adherence problem. Now, this is where Novarest comes in. The first night I used the CPAP machine, I, th- I thought, this sucks. This thing sucks. And why did it suck? When you first put it on, it's like, okay, it's actually, it actually feels kind of comfortable. But then over time, as the CPAP machine starts to ramp up, it, it's like it's, it's forcing air into you at a rate that feels unnatural. Have you ever stuck your head out of a out of a car going like 120 kilometers per hour and like open your mouth? There's almost like this feeling of like it's almost accosting this feeling of air being forced into your into your airway. And it it's it's sort of a similar sensation as as that except it's all condensed down into your nostrils and to the back of your throat. And so to fall asleep while that is happening, for me, was next to impossible. If 100 people are diagnosed with sleep apnea and get sent home with a CPAP machine, five years later, only 15 will still be using it. For a moment here, we're going to look at the intersection of business and health outcomes. Because in this instance, they go hand in tightly clasped hand. Novarest is focused on um, the comfort and adherence on CPAP machines. That first three months of use of CPAP machines is pretty important for everyone. Let me elaborate. Patients uh, go home with a CPAP machine. They're diagnosed with sleep apnea. They're prescribed with a CPAP machine. They go home. They're supposed to use it more than four hours a night per night to be able to be eligible for insurance coverage. And this is the U.S., this is Canada, this is Western Europe, and many other insurance-enabled countries. Now, a lot of patients, more than 50%, in the first three months of use fail in being able to use it more than four hours a night. So they can't, they either have to pay out of pocket or... Uh, They just give up and they have to return the machine. So if you don't use a CPAP machine for four hours each night for 70% of the first three months, you won't qualify for insurance coverage. 
And this causes two big problems. First, and most importantly, the people who have a diagnosis and need treatment aren't getting it. Secondly, everyone from the manufacturers of CPAP machines down to the sleep clinics aren't getting paid. So everybody is losing by not using CPAP machines. If we convince only 10 of them out of 100 to use the machine means improvement, 10% improvement in adherence. Only for the top company in the market being ResMed, that means $300 million a year more revenue. $300 million is a lot of money. And again, I wanted to highlight this because every one of those dollars not being earned is connected to a patient that's not being treated. And we know from everything we've explored in this episode already that not being treated has serious consequences. Remember a few minutes ago when we talked about technologies that have come to the end of the road? Well, sometimes another technology comes along, one that is seemingly unrelated. And all of a sudden, a new path of innovation and opportunity reveals itself for those that are paying close attention. Uh, And that's where machine learning comes in, where when you have a lot of data, if you have a patient that has four years of data, that's night after night, hour after hour for four years. So we ended up having 30 to 40 patients and collected around 70,000 apneas. You can see if you can uh, predict, um, you know, uh, or classify certain aspects of that data. And our focus was before these apneas happen, is there a pattern that can say it's going to happen and what is going to happen? Since the fall of 2022, the world has changed. AI has entrenched itself in the zeitgeist of the modern world. And where we once saw dead ends, we now see open roads. Hamed Hanafi is one such person who noticed AI's place in treating sleep apnea before the ChatGPTs and the Google Bards of the world became household fixtures. When I started Novoresp, the idea was to detect changes faster on CPAPs. Let's say an apnea happened, let's know in milliseconds if it's obstructive or central or hypopnea. With CPAP machines seemingly at the end of their rope in terms of innovation, their major flaw is that they push out high pressures when you stop breathing. That's because high pressure is needed to open up a completely collapsed airway. In the very beginning of blowing up a party balloon, you have to push really hard and then it gets easier. Same as the airway. If you let it collapse, it's, you need to have capabilities of such high pressures to either open it up or keep it open. But the idea of machine learning that ties our algorithm into improving comfort came from the balloon analogy. And if we could predict, then we didn't need that, those high pressures. So now all of a sudden, we're not just scientists improving something science-wise. Now we're improving comfort for patients, improving sales for manufacturers and DMEs. So it just added a whole different level. Basically with machine learning, it's if something is noticed with your eyes, if you have enough data out of that, you can do it with machine learning. When you incorporate AI into the picture, all of a sudden you unlock the ability to predict an apnea event before it happens. That predictive capability changes everything. I would tap ourselves in the back uh, in terms of 
thinking of this prediction and prevention through our discussions with our uh, with doctors and scientists that are brainstorming with the company, inventors of our patents, that we saw this a couple of years before uh, everybody else did in terms of application to sleep apnea. Hamed and his team at Novaresp developed a software called CMAP, which stands for Continuous Management of Airway Pressure. And it can be added to any CPAP machine, allowing them to predict apnea events before they happen. CMAP can predict events before an apnea would happen. The influence of that on the patient would be, I'd be going back to the balloon analogy. Patient falls asleep. Usually the pressure dramatically increases throughout the night in order to react to the apneas that are happening. CMAP predicts them. So the chances of CMAP ending up as high in pressure as normal therapy is happening right now is very low because most of the apneas are prevented with gentle interventions before they would occur. Let's go back to our end of the road analogy just one more time. If CPAP innovation was at a dead end and AI opened the road ahead, lower pressures are the bridge to it. When you lower pressures, you can use smaller pumps to create that pressure. And if you use smaller pumps, you decrease power requirements, which takes a machine that since its inception has been plugged into outlets. And now it can be battery powered. When it has a smaller pump and can operate on something like a lithium battery, the size can drastically shrink. Instead of being a bulky machine, now it could take the form of a wearable device. Or perhaps it's integrated into the very pillow you lay your head on each night. CMAP is going to change the game in CPAP therapy big time. And um, I'm, I'm a humble person, but this is, this is the reality. If you reduce the pressure of therapy uh, on normal CPAP machines, now there is all sorts of possibilities for future machines. Now, why, do, why are CPAPs so large? Uh, the main problem is they have a big pump on them that's very noisy and needs to generate huge amounts of pressure. But if you don't need huge amounts of pressure, now all of a sudden, battery-enabled, attractive, wearable CPAPs become a possibility. Now imagine, remove the tube from the equation. You can roll over. Remove being tethered to your bedside. Future machines could be built off of this software and only off of the software. The beauty of it is that if you, don't, if you can't predict and prevent apneas, the machines have come as far as they can come. They can't go farther than this. So I think, um, I think we're in the beginning of a huge move here. The one thing we haven't mentioned yet about the drawbacks of conventional CPAP machines is that they can be stigmatizing. I know you know what, what, a, what being hooked up to a CPAP looks like. And bedtime's kind of sometimes, most of the time, used for sexy time. And so there was, there was also, like, this kind of, like, oh, God, now i got to put this thing on, and it's going to, like, take away from, like, the sexiness. It, there was, like, it just, it, I felt like I was kind of steeped in the, the stigma surrounding a CPAP machine. Our bedrooms and our beds are the places we want to feel the most comfortable, the most at ease. It's the place we go to plug ourselves in and recharge so we can handle all of our responsibilities and accomplish all of our goals. 
A major factor in the adherence problem with CPAP is that it can, possibly, make someone feel like their sacred space isn't so sacred anymore. And when it's a wearable, you can actually build it more attractive, so you're not too ashamed of revealing using it. Novaresp was an early adopter of using artificial intelligence to solve one of the most widespread issues in healthcare. The way you sleep at night influences every single aspect of your life, both physically and mentally. Their biggest contribution, though, is that they're creating software that will make it easier for someone to treat a condition that can wreak havoc on their lives. And if you've got a product that can change the lives of a billion people, you know you're onto something. New Wave is a Life Sciences Nova Scotia podcast, and it's produced by Snack Labs. It's written and hosted by me, Taylor McGilvery, and it's edited by Brian Stever, Jeremy Saunders, and me. Sound design and engineering by Donovan Morgan. Special thanks to the team at Life Sciences Nova Scotia, Sean Awalt, Doris Grant, Carrie Manette, Kira McGlinchey, and Lorianne Coring. And to our guests, Hamid Haddafi, Neil Smith, and Vera Lloyd. To learn more about NovaResp, go to novaresp.com. I want to take a moment before we wrap up today and dedicate this episode to Dr. Michael Schmidt. I hope it came across during the episode, but Hamed is one of the nicest humans you may get the opportunity to meet. Off air, we spoke about his experience of growing up in Iran and ultimately coming to Canada as an adult. A swirling mixture of circumstances led Hamed to become someone who is simply drawn to helping people, and it draws him to others who feel that same pull. Hamed wrote me shortly after we recorded with the sad news that his friend, mentor, and collaborator, Dr. Michael Schmidt, had just passed away. In Hamed's words, he was a true genius. While an anesthesiologist, he couldn't help himself but invent. He held over 60 patents and truly left us too early. Hamed and Dr. Schmidt submitted the patent for the predictive and preventative software that we spoke about today and shook on making that idea become a reality. And we are thankful that they did. This one's for you, Dr. Schmidt.